Okay, before we jump into today's show, I have something really important that I want to talk to you about. I'm working on this a really kind of a top secret project, something that I'm really passionate about that I think is going to help a lot of people. And I wanted to see if I could get your help. Now, I'm not going to talk about exactly what this project is, but let's just say it's specifically designed for people who do not yet have a real estate business. They wanna be in real estate. They love the idea of starting a wholesaling or a flipping or a buy and hold kind of a business. They've been listening to my podcasts or other podcasts and they really wanna get started, but there's something holding them back. There's something that's keeping them from doing it. It could be their own self-doubt. It could be friends and family telling them they're crazy. It could be as simple as they just don't have a plan. They don't know where to start. They don't even know what to do first. Like, how do I start this journey? I want to help with that. And by you reaching out to me and telling me that's who you are, that you're that person who wants a real estate investing company, whether it be a side hustle or you want to do this full time, you want it to be your main thing. Either way, if you haven't gotten started and something's holding you back, I don't care what it is. Could be, like I said, you, could be your family, could be your spouse, could be just lack of knowledge. Like you just don't know what to do first. You don't know how to start. Or maybe you don't even know what it is you want to do in real estate. You don't know if you want to flip. You don't know if you want to be a wholesaler. You don't know if you want to buy rentals. If you fall into any of those categories and you want my help with it, I am offering that to you right now. All you have to do is go to mike at juststartrealestate.com and put in the subject line, help, and I will reach out to you. I don't care if you've never done anything before. If you're completely green and you don't have a clue as to where to get started, that's the person that I'm looking for. And maybe you do know what you want to do. Maybe you know exactly what you want to do in real estate, but still something's holding you back. You have some fear or something. I want to help you get unstuck. So please take advantage of this opportunity. Reach out to me, email me at mike at juststartrealestate.com, subject line help, and I will get right back to you. We'll set up a time, we'll hop on a call, and we'll chat. I want to help you get unstuck so you can move forward and realize your dream of having a real estate investing company. So reach out to me, use that email address, subject line help. I can't wait to hear from you. All right, guys, let's dive into the show. We batted a completely unsustainable and high average. Like we got, I can't remember how many qualified leads we got because we didn't even measure anything. And, but we closed like three to five, I can't remember, three or four or five deals in like 45 days. On a thousand uh, person list or a couple thousand person list? A couple thousand. It was, yeah. Like we don't bat yeah. that high of an average now. We didn't even know that that was unrealistic. You're listening to the Just Start Real Estate Podcast. If you're serious about your real estate investing business and need real answers, you are in the right place. And now, your host, Mike Simmons. Hey everybody, I am excited to be here. This is a good one. I've got a great show for you. We get down into the weeds of the real estate investing business. He's a wholesaler, he's a flipper, he's a West Point graduate and has a mission to become the premier buyer and seller and thought leader of real estate in markets around the United States. 
It's a veteran-led operation, and they place a high priority on integrity and partnering with top talent. Guys, I had a lot of fun uh, talking to my guest today. Like I said, he's a West Point graduate, and uh, we just had a we had a great, great time. And I don't want to waste too much time talking in the beginning here. I want you just to dive in and meet my very special guest, Frank. Hey, Frank, thanks for doing this, man. Thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Hey, Mike. Uh, I'm happy to be on. Super pumped. I've been looking forward to this for sure. Awesome. Me too. Me too. I can't wait because I, I do a lot of interviews on here. And not all of them are with like hardcore real estate people. Some of them are like thought leaders and people who just like motivate and, and people who are like have tangential sort of businesses. But now I'm, I'm digging into someone who actually is in the, you know, in the heart of the real estate world that I talk to mostly. Um, fix and flips and wholesaling and all that kind of stuff. So this will be a, a fun conversation and I think really good and actionable and tactical for people who are listening that are just trying to get started or frankly have one and, and they know there's some better ways to do it. So uh, let's start off by rewinding a little bit. I want to talk about your background. Why did you get into real estate? Um, you know, it's super sexy to think about being a real estate mogul, but you and I both know there's a lot of grinding and a lot of, you know, face down in the dirt to get where you want to go. So what, what does your background look like and why did you get into this industry, please? Yeah, so uh, I actually, my background for most of my adult life has been in financial services. Um, so I was working at JP Morgan prior to moving full-time into real estate and prior to that, I was an army officer. So I got kind of a, a weird, a unique background, I guess. Um, and to be honest, I, I was not interested in real estate until I probably hit the age 30. I'm 33 now. Um, probably my dad was in real estate and he, um, he took on a lot of risk. He was a developer. He was also lending money and he hit a down cycle in the market and he went bankrupt in both of his businesses. So I was, in my family, it was kind of like real estate was um, not taboo, but, you know, approached with caution. Yeah. But, uh, then I bought my primary residence uh, where I live in Westchester and I kind of just like loved the house searching process. Um, there's something about it that I thought was a lot of fun. And then I started looking back um, at the places I lived in the army, I lived in Colorado Springs and I was like, man, if I, if I had just got involved in real estate earlier, I would have, I don't know how many more hundreds of thousands of dollars in wealth. <laughs> right. Cause I, I actually, I lived in the highest appreciating market in the country at the time. Yeah. And the house that I was renting, I know that the owner bought it for one ninety nine, And then I looked on Zillow a couple of years later and he sold it for three twenty, right. And it was yeah. a rental. Yeah. And, um, that's when I was like, okay, I'm going to just read a little bit and see what I don't know. Um, then I went down the bigger pockets, you know, rabbit hole, YouTube university, like a lot of us do. And I, uh, I was like, I'm going to jump in, bought my first single family. Shortly after that, I bought a duplex, um, in Texas. What year was this and, now? What, uh, what year are we talking about? This was only a year, two years ago, year and a half ago. Okay. This is not that long ago. Yeah. So all my experience isn't really in the last two years. Okay. That makes um, sense. Go ahead. Then, I, I interrupted uh, you. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Tell, I no, no, all good. All good. All good. Um, and uh, I got those two deals done. And then this is kind of how Grayline started our company. Now, um, John Plumstead, my partner, reached out to me in February of 2020. And he's like, hey, I see you're into real estate now. I've been doing real estate for the last five years or so. Um, <laughs> you and your buddy, Justin, who is another one of the partners we started the company with, want to pull some money together and pull some effort together and start doing more deals this year, you know? Yeah. And um, we made a goal to do 10 uh, single family transactions from February to October. I don't know how we landed on that, but that's what we said. <laughs> and, it's a uh, good number. It's a good round number. 
You know, we're like, oh, yeah, we like round numbers because like go. I do too. <laughs> I think seven is not as powerful, right? No. So like we're just like, yeah, that's just and eleven is just weird. So ten feels about right. <laughs> yeah, you tell someone you want to do eleven deals, they think exactly. you're OCD, you're psychopath. Exactly, right? so, exactly. Just say ten. So we just made up a number, um, and then we started doing like what everyone does. They look on the MLS. They're looking on like bigger park, bigger pockets marketplace and places where, you know, deals really aren't there. Right. So yeah, we struggled for about two to three weeks. And then one of us said, I can't remember who, Hey, let's just do what wholesalers do and do direct to seller marketing. Yeah. And, uh, we got extremely lucky. I think our first list that we pulled was tired landlord list. And I think we only had a couple thousand records on there and it was, um, we did two cities, Lawton, Oklahoma and Colleen, Texas. And we, we batted a completely unsustainable and high average. Like we got, I can't remember how many qualified leads we got because we didn't even measure anything. And, but we closed like three to five, I can't remember, three or four or five deals in like 45 days. On a thousand um, person list or a couple thousand person list? A couple thousand. It was, yeah. Like we don't bat yeah. that high of an average now. We didn't even know that that was unrealistic. Was it you know, sort of, so I have a couple questions. Number one, was it, was it uh, relatively untapped? I mean, was there a lot of competition? I'm assuming no, but it, was there a lot of competition? So in, in Lawton, no, no one's really like flooding the Lawton, Oklahoma market. We just knew it was a good rental market because I was an artillery officer and I lived there. Mm, okay. uh, and it's, it's very much, there's just a lot of tired landlords in that particular city. So uh, that's my other question. That's my other question real quick. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but how, yeah. I know people are listening to this going, hey, tired landlord list, where do I get that? Like, was that like, did you guys put that together like by hand or is there someplace you downloaded a tired land? And how do you know? How in the world do you get a tired landlord list? Who knows who's tired and who's not? How does that work? That's a good question. So we we use PropStream, which is okay. pretty common in mm -hmm. our industry, to pull our lists. Um, and, and what tired landlord is, it's 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 that person that's owned it, that high equity, right? Mm -hmm. So you'll filter in PropStream on your list on high equity. You could also filter on years of ownership. So you could say, I want people with 50% equity or more and 10 years or more ownership. You can yep. play with those numbers however you want. Yep. Um, but the, the goal is you want to find a tired landlord. If they're out of state, haven't seen the home in 10 years, you know, that, that's a good list. That's, yep. that's what, basically what we pulled. And um, what we, we kind of got lucky, we were targeting military bases. And what, what we found is they're great markets for this strategy because there's a ton of single family rentals. And to me, rental markets or places with lots of landlords are great cities to wholesale in. Mm -hmm. And this was a complete accidental benefit that we kind of stumbled upon. So like I said, we batted an unrealistically high average pulling these lists in PropStream. And uh, how we got started, we took that list, we put it in a CSV, and um, we upload all those data into Lead Sherpa, which is an SMS texting platform. Mm -hmm. and we didn't even have like phone numbers or anything set up. Like now we have like call rail and we use all these tools to shield our numbers, sure. lead Sherpa, we buy numbers beginning, you know, we're using lead Sherpa for some, but like not all of us had the login. Some of us are texting on our cell phones. Like it was like a mess. Yeah. yeah. And, um, which you, you shouldn't do, but we did anyway. And, uh, we closed a couple of deals and then we we're like, Hey, let's, let's scale. Let's do, let's do well, it. I will know? say what you shouldn't do in the long term and once you've kind of got your systems and processes is exactly what you should do in the beginning when you have nothing going on like i'm all for like man use your cell phone i don't care like let them call your house go whatever you have to do because people get all caught up and i just had we just had a, a meeting of our, our mastermind 
And some of the folks that were kind of in the new phase were like, I need a CRM and how do you set up call rail? And they're like thinking of all these systems, which is absolutely appropriate at some point. But it's like, have you done a deal yet? Well, I haven't sent out any marketing or I haven't done any marketing. It's like, get a deal, man. Just just get some money going and build those systems along the way. It, you did it exactly right, honestly. I think the people who try to get their entire business automated and systemized, they're the ones who never get off the ground because they're always preparing to prepare, right? Yeah, I, I, I've been on a kick where I've been saying this to my team. I, I want to play offense as much as possible, right? Call rail to me is defense, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. Once you have a really good offense, play some defense. So you got to defend the business you have. Yep. But at the beginning, how many people did you talk to? Like how many yep. sellers did you actually get on the phone with? That's a much better indicator of how much revenue you're going to drive than how many phone numbers you've booked, yeah. right? Like 100% right. 100% right. Offense, well, first of all, you need to play defense, but you never stop playing offense. And if offense becomes the backseat to defense, your business will start sliding downhill. I really believe that because I think offense is also generating leads. That's offense. You're going after leads. And the minute your leads stop, it's sort of like someone cutting off your oxygen to your body. Like you've got minutes and you're dead, mm -hmm. right? Your, your, your company is dead when you stop getting leads. So yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I think people play a lot of defense because playing defense sort of makes you feel like you're in the game. But if you always play defense, you can't win. You got to, you know, you got to play offense. I like that. Analogy. I like sports yeah. analogies, by the way. So that's good. Um, so you've not been doing this super duper long. Um, let's go. I want to dial back a little bit because there's something you didn't talk about. And maybe there's nothing to say, but I want to, I want to investigate this part of it. First, I, for, I don't know this answer. It's not a loaded question. Are you married or somebody in a relationship? Yeah, I am. Okay. I am. I am. Were, were yeah. you married when you started this this business? Yeah. Okay. We, I've actually, um, I've been with my, we we were high school sweethearts that okay. broke up during college and got back together. So we've, gotcha. we've been here. Okay. Yeah. Well, talk, talk to me about that conversation. When you first realized like, oh man, I, this real estate thing, is. I think I want to do this. Like this is going to be my thing. Was she like, 100%, you're great, let's do it, I have no reservations? Or was there any conversation there that had to happen? I'm asking this because I know there's a lot of people listening who are like, oh, I wanna do this too, but my wife will never go for it, my husband will never go for it. Like, somebody got burned in our family, right? And like, now that's sort of taboo. Like, how did you address that? Or was it super easy? If it was super easy, we'll move on. But if it wasn't, I wanna talk about that. I, uh, it, was, it was not difficult at the beginning. My, and that was because we, I had a couple assets previous to starting this company. Okay. I think um, convincing my wife that we're going to dedicate some funds to real estate was a conversation we had, but I think after laying out the numbers, she was on board. So it wasn't that difficult. Okay. What, um, what could have been more challenging was when I told my wife I was going to quit my full-time job. There you right? go. <laughs> you yeah. know, that, that, that was a more deliberate move. Um, I definitely think I was so excited the first couple of months of the business. I think she was a little bit of the voice of reason. Like, Hey, we have, one kid, yeah. you know, we just had another kid um, yeah. while this is all going on a couple of months ago. And it's like, hey, you, you know, you still have a family to take care of. Like maybe you should make sure this business is still running six months down the road before you make any rash decisions, which so, is what happened. Okay. It so worked. you gave yourself six months of, of historic success before you, before you left. Was that, you said it was deliberate, the decision. Did you have any metrics that you wanted to hit exactly? Like, is it like replace my income in six months kind of a thing? Or what, what did that, what was the decision mechanism that you made, you had there? So I definitely wanted at least three months of operating expenses in the bank account for the company. I, uh, one thing in wholesaling, it's not cheap to wholesale, especially once you scale. 
Um, wait, 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 ho- wait, wholesaling. You don't need any experience. You don't need any money. That's what they tell you. That's what the gurus tell you. You don't need anything. You just go out there and you get deals and you assign them. No money needed. The, the less money you spend, the more hustle you have to produce. That's right? true. So, yeah, you could drive for dollars. And, uh, <laughs> I was being sarcastic, by the way. Yeah, I know. Wholesaling can be insane, insanely expensive depending on how you do it. Yeah. Like, what, you could start with two grand and I think you could close a deal. Um, but um, if you have, we have an acquisition manager now, we have a disposition lead or C2C lead, uh, meaning contract to close. We have seven virtual assistants. So, I mean, it's this, obviously this is not free. And you have a responsibility to keep money in the bank account, yeah. not only for yourself, but for them. You know, yeah. God forbid SMS gets turned off or Verizon blocks your texts and your leads go down 30%. What are you going to do, lay them off? No, of course not, right? So you have to have liquidity. Yep. So for me, having three months in the bank account was super important. And uh, we did have some issues with SMS um, in November and December. So our leads were down. But I, I think in November it was down 50%. Big deal for us. We've, we've now corrected it. But um, liquidity saved us there, right? And that was right when I quit my job. So yeah. Um, yeah. I wanted three months is what I'm getting to. And uh, I wanted consistent deal flow. Um, so I, I had known we, we were able to show that in the past. So that's what gave me the confidence to quit. Okay. So let, let, let's talk about the structure of your business a little bit. Cause I'm interested. So let me see if I got this. You're wholesaling. It sounds like you're doing some fix and flip. Uh, mm-hmm. is there, are you doing rentals too? Um, no, we're okay. not. We, we had one at the very beginning. We, we took under on seller financing, okay. but we've gotten away from it. Okay. So essentially your, your business model is wholesaling and fix and flip. What, what percentage of your business would you say is each? How, how big is one versus the other? Yeah. Well, my CPA just broke all this down. So I, I actually know for 2020, okay. so we were 80% wholesale and uh, 20% fix and flip just from a volume perspective. Yep. But, um, we were closer to like 30% revenue from flip, 70% from wholesaling, just because our flips made sure. yeah, you know, makes more sense. dollars per flip. That um, so that's, that's where we were. And uh, the way we decide, um, I thought I was going to follow, there was a mantra out there in the YouTube university world, like um, flip the best, wholesale the rest or something like that. And okay. uh, I, I, I disagree with that model um, because I, I think- if that's your attitude, you end up cannibalizing your own buyers and that's no way to scale a business. So our criteria for what we flip on our own has changed. So we, um, we operate in over 10 cities, but we only have really, really strong contractors in a handful of those cities, right? Yeah. So like I got to have a good contractor yeah. that I've worked with before or one of my close associates have worked with them. That's yeah. like number one, because yep. that's where you lose money. Um, two is we don't do flips that are extensive or really big. Like we, we want to win on price since that's what our business is set up to do really well. And if we have to put 15 grand in a house, you know, to get to the margin we want, that's fine. If it's going to be 50 grand, we won't do it. Um, okay. the, the most expensive flip we've done, um, was a $30,000 flip and the majority of them are under $15,000. Gotcha. So we try to, uh, be pretty selective and not bite off more than we can chew just cause I live in New York and most of our flips are in North Carolina you know, Florida, Texas. It's a great so. point. Why? Well, I, I think I know, but tell people listening why you're in New York. Why not flip in your backyard and wholesale in your backyard? Why are you doing it across the country and how do you do it across the country? I, uh, I love the safety that um, Southeast and rental cities provide. I look at a market like Fayetteville, North Carolina, which is becoming more and more popular. Um, if let's say I 
for whatever reason, the flip doesn't work out that well. I'm, I might even break even or I might lose $5,000. I can refi that thing and turn it into a rental and weather that storm quite easily, right? And our business, since it's built off of hitting lots of singles and doubles, I feel like that fits our business model better than coming to Westchester, New York, where I live, buying a house for 300, putting 100 grand worth of work into it and trying to sell it for 650 or something, you know, or 700. Yeah. That's kind of what the numbers might look like um, in some parts of Westchester. But obviously, there's a lot of risk. Um, also, where I live, there's a little bit of like a suburban housing bubble brewing with the New York City exodus. Yeah. And no one knows when the music's going to stop. I'm just not equipped to, yeah. to play in that game right now. And, and, you, and why should you in the world that we're living in? You can flip and wholesale remotely. So what... Tell me, tell me some of the systems that you have in place that allow, because I think most people would say, I don't live in that city. I can't see the houses every day. Like I'm trusting people. And how are you doing that remotely specifically with the fix and flip stuff? And, and, and let me, okay, I will do that. And I have a second follow-up question to that, but how are you managing those crews? Yeah, I, um, I mean, how I screen them, it's, uh, well, it's I'll screen them and then manage them during the project. Yeah. So I, I definitely, I think we do a good job of screening. Um, like I said, it's referral based. In some cases I've worked with the contractor before, like previous to Grayline, I had worked with my uh, Colleen contractor where we'd done some flips. So I knew him. So that, that was easy. Okay. Um, but because we were in a lot of military bases and that's where we do a lot of flips, a lot of our contractors are veterans and uh, like I'm, I'm pro veteran, you know, I'm, I was a service yep. member and I think um, that increases our chances that we have a trustworthy person on the ground and it hasn't bit, bitten us in the butt yet. So that, that definitely has helped. Um, how I manage contractors. So this is my, what I tell people in terms of managing rehabs is I don't nickel and dime my contractors. Like at the beginning, I don't try to mess with, I, if I find a trustworthy person, which I think I have, I don't try to like knock them down on their pricing. Cause to me, contractors, they, they have employees, they got materials. Like they're they're going to cover those costs some way or another during your project. So yeah. the most important thing for me is when a project starts, I'm like, Hey, I know you have to make it a little bit of money. Shoot me straight. Right. If there's a legitimate change order, bring it to my attention immediately. We'll talk about it. And, but like, I'm extremely straightforward and I just tell them, I expect you to do the same thing in return. Yeah. That's it. But uh, if their price is fair upon first look and I'm happy with my margins, like I won't try to, to dive into their part of the pie, yeah. right? Yep. That, that's, uh, I want to be easy to work with, so they want to work with me too. Um, and after that, like, I, uh, I like to look at a, their proposal and I like it itemized, you know? Um, yeah. And I'll sit down and have a conversation with them and I'll say, hey, like, do you think I need to do this to increase the value of the home? Like, I try to treat them as a consultant and um, I feel like good contractors then feel valued, um, which... You know, they're, they're doing it to make money, but it doesn't hurt to have them psychologically invested in the project, yeah. right? So, you know, I try to collaborate with them and treat them that way. And um, that, that's been pretty effective, honestly, for me. I think it's huge for people to understand. And I, I was guilty of this. And to be honest, sometimes I'm still guilty of it a little bit, is trying to constantly negotiate every single thing that they present to you down to the lowest common number, because you're right, they'll they'll eventually they'll either get that in the project or they'll get it in a project or they won't prioritize your job because it's a break even or barely making any money. So you have to be careful that the cheapest isn't the best in most cases. Yeah. So uh, I think that's important. And just treating people like put yourself in their shoes and how would you want to be treated? That's kind of a lot of it is a little bit do unto others a little bit. Um, 
So when you're doing this in other states, you're buying and you're wholesaling and you're flipping in other states. How do you get reliable uh, values so that you stay out of trouble? ARVs. How are you comping these properties so that you feel comfortable that you know exactly what it'll be worth? Yeah, we, we use PropStream to okay. do our comps. That's what I as thought. Well. Yeah. Yeah. So we, um, we, we want to get a minimum three. Um, so we look uh, one year back within a quarter mile of the house and we'll usually in our markets, that'll get you like seven comps. And um, you just try to get the most alike houses that have recently sold yep. um, in the area to get your price per square foot. That's we use price per square foot is what most people use. Yep. Um, we do that. You know, we, we look at the pictures too um, because it, if you want to get it more accurate from a remote location or doing it virtually, like you have to look at all those comps and like, what does the house actually look like? Like yeah. at this point, if you show me pictures of a listing, like I know which, which is a flip, which is a home that's been lived in for five to seven years and right. it's a good condition. And there's a difference, right? Like you need to be able to tell this is the high end flip for that market. Like once you find that, I'm like, okay, here's my ARV. Yep. Um, so yeah, that, it's, that it's pretty sense. straightforward. Yeah, I, I think so too. So one thing you mentioned uh, uh, a few minutes back was you started throwing out some of the, the, um, people that are in your company, their titles and their, their, their kind of their jobs. Can you kind of walk through the structure from a, from a, um, you know, personnel standpoint, what do people do? Cause you mentioned something I'd never heard before, honestly, and I've talked to a lot of investors over the years, you had a position that I never heard of, but I, it was intriguing. So if you could just kind of step through who all works for you and what do they do? Yeah, I'll start with acquisitions since that's where the, the process begins. We have an acquisition manager, named Adam Parsons. That was my partner, John Plumstead, until he leveraged up. Okay. Um, and he is supported. So he basically, what his day looks like is he's managing his acquisitions team, all the, the lead specialists. Um, some people call them virtual assistants. We call them lead specialists. He manages that entire team. Their job is to facilitate leads to him or give him leads. He talks to qualified leads. That, that's what he does. He manages the process talks to qualified sellers and he tries to close them every single day. Elite specialists, um, do they, do they, are they answering phones and checking like incoming lead opportunities, sifting them and sending them? They're not, are they setting his appointments or is he setting his own appointments? They, they will tell him, Hey, this seller is ready for an appointment. Um, okay. and they, they know how to get on his calendar, but, um, they, they're doing, they're, they're definitely receiving inbound messages, but, um, we're, we're an outbound driven okay. marketing company. Okay. So we are, um, text, cold calling and RVM ringless voicemail are okay. three main channels to be, to be honest, we did pay-per-click for a while and it got kind of expensive. So we kind of ramped it down. Um, I think we thought at the beginning we're messing it up. We're doing something wrong, but I think there's other people saying the same thing. So we were like, Oh, maybe we, we re reduced the spend. We probably yeah. wasted a little bit of money there to be honest. Um, but anyway, we, uh, they do mostly outbound and we do a lot. Like I just uh, looked at our December data and even with the days we took off, like, we sent almost 200,000 outbound messages uh, between all of our virtual assistants. If you combine text, cold calling, and RVM, how many? Did you how many? How many did you do? Just under 200,000 200, outbound 000. messages. Okay. Add them all up. Wow. So that, that is a lot. Um, more than most people. We're kind of a shotgun blast outbound marketing company. Um, and uh, so they'll they'll then screen these sellers, and it's super simple. Like, do you own the house? Question number one. Like, you got to you got to confirm that. Uh, and then we are very upfront that we are investors and we ask them if they're willing to sell the house for less than their uh, Zestimate or Zillow estimated value. Um, yeah. Just because we want to be totally transparent with them. Like, hey, it's cash, quick close, but we're doing this to make a profit. And um, 
you know, some wholesalers do that, some don't. I think what ends up happening if you're not transparent is your acquisition manager is going to get a lot more leads if you don't ask those questions. Yeah. But the quality of those leads will go down. And because we, the way we built the company, we have a lot of lead specialists and one acquisition manager. Yeah. He needs to be qualified. So Got it. we, uh, we choose to screen them a little bit up front. Now, when you, you kind of implied, or maybe you said that you kind of a blast shotgun blast approach. When it comes to like text and and maybe even more, at least in my experience, RVM, is your message like basically what most investors put on a postcard? Hey, if you want to sell fast for cash, we can buy. You don't have to do any updates. We'll close at your convenience. Like all that kind of a message and you just blast that out. And if so, how do you deal with like being blacklisted and all? Like there's some, there's some logistics behind the scene if you sort of go like, more in your face blasting with RVM and obviously tons and tons of like angry people that are, that are uh, calling you back and saying, don't ever call me again. Are you guys, or are you guys trying to come up with a creative, more of a subtle approach to your RVM? How does that work for you guys? Well, I don't, we're not doing anything um, crazy different or crazy creative. I don't okay. think, um, but you do have to monitor stuff to make sure you don't. Yeah. Uh, get jammed up. Like, do not call us. Gotta gotta keep tracking that stuff. Um, so you don't get in the in the doghouse. RVM, we haven't had that much of an issue. Okay. Um, we've been actually creeping that volume up, so we might rub up against issues soon. Okay. But RVM, we've been okay. Maybe lucky, to be honest. Yeah. Um, but uh, text, we because our volume was so high, we did get jammed up. Right. Okay. So some carriers were getting blocked by Verizon. So naturally, our delivery rates went down on SMS. Mm, yeah. So we weren't the only ones to have that issue, but it happened. And that was a bummer. Um, but sometimes we would have links in some of the texts we responded to sellers with and mm -hmm. that stuff can get blocked. They can pick up on it. And uh, we did see our delivery rates dip. So now we've kind of figured out like what messages to stay away from. Um, some of the carriers, Launch Control, Lead Sherpa, they have customer support. They'll try to help you and yeah. tell you like, Hey, avoid, avoid this, do this. Do you, so do, you mind, do you mind saying some of the big things you realize that you should get away from? Like, I'm sure like free or like some of those buzzwords, but like, you don't have to give us everything obviously, but is there certain things that are pretty common that people should avoid? Oh man, put me on the spot. I, I don't know. I, I've actually been far away from like what okay. our text templates are for probably two months. Good. I know that. Good if you for try you, to by be, by the way, good for you. By the way, that's a, that that implies that you're creating a system and you have people that can that are competent that you don't have to be in the weeds every day. So I'm fine with that. But yeah, I'm just curious if you had that that answer. I uh, I can't remember anything off the top of my head to be okay. honest. I, I I think I could make it up and be close, but I don't want. <laughs> Thanks for not lying to me. I appreciate it. Um, so what do you think? A couple things that we're we're going into a new year. Last year was bizarre to say the least. Yeah. Um, Nobody has a crystal ball, so I'm not asking you to be a, some sort of a, um, a fortune teller. But what are you telling your team to expect to see in the coming months? What, what are you What are you preparing for? So uh, a couple of things I'm noticing in 2021, and this could be the New Year's resolutions um, coming to fruition. We're getting incredible buyer demand right now in our yeah. wholesaling operation. Um, we had we've had four houses sold sight unseen this month. Um, and we had, I think three in all of 2020, Wow! um, like buyers are buying them cash without, yeah, we're like, Hey, you can look at the house. Like we have a walkthrough next Friday. They're like, Nope, want to buy it list price today. We're like, okay, 
You know, it's to the point where I have questions, should I even be allowing them to do this? But you know, I don't think so I mean, personally. I mean, not far be it for me. We to, let them in anyway. Yeah. Like of course if we let them in later, but it's uh, something I've, I've, I was so surprised. I'm like, man, how do I manage this? So here, um, here's kind of the way, here's the way we look at it in our business. And, and I'm just like, going to jump in here because I'm, I'm pretty passionate about this. And Dispo was kind of where I cut my teeth. I feel like that's my superpower. If we ever put out a property and we have people calling us and they want to buy it before anyone sees it sight unseen for cash, we are leaving money on the table if we sell it to that person because there yeah. will be a bidding war with that property and it will get bid up significantly. So we had this happen early on in our business. We put something out, we use uh, email marketing. So we put it out, we get a call five minutes, I'll buy it cash, end of story. And my dispo guy came to me and he's like, good news. Five minutes ago, I sent this out. I've already got a cash offer. I said, do not take it, wait and see what happens. By the end of the day, that thing got bid up $30,000. It was just insane. So. My suggestion would be do not do that because they want they don't want anybody else to get in there for a reason, obviously. So anyways, yeah. that's my two cents. Yeah, no, I've, I've thought about that. Like, I'm like, am I losing money? But I'm getting throughput, right? I'm getting throughput by getting things closed. So I, there's, there's how, pros many, and cons. how many deals will you do in 2021? Do you estimate you'll do? <sighs> I um, Our goal for Q1 is to sustain a pace where we're doing three deals closed per week. And, um, I think we're going to get there. We have two locked up actually as of Tuesday this week. So right. we're like starting to hit that. Um, so that would land us at what, you know, 150 to 200. Hopefully okay. we can get, Let, hopefully let's we just say, let's just say you have a bad year and you only do a hundred, but you leave $5,000 per deal on the table because you're grabbing the first offer. It's a half a million dollars in profit. Right? So uh, I get it. The throughput is great. I love velocity, but man, even a thousand dollars is a hundred grand. So, anyway, something to think about. I, I I would never sell to the first guy who's dying to get it without seeing it because yeah. you will make more. But, um, dude, man, I, I love it. I by the way, I've also been in this thing since two thousand and nine. You've been in it for like a year and a half or two years, and I love it. You're rocking it. You guys are gonna do well over a hundred deals, maybe two hundred deals this year. You're creating a system where you don't know the granular details of what's happening in your marketing, which is some people might look at it and go, well, that's crazy. You should know. No, not if you're going to run a business. We had this conversation offline before we got on here. And I said, you know, people look at wholesaling and flipping as like active and then rentals as passive. I've got my assistant spending this week at one of my rentals because we have a, a drainage problem going out to the street. It's going to absorb a crazy, a lot of my time this week. Uh, but I have a wholesaling and flipping business that's running right now. We're buying and I just, I know what's happening because I get a text in our, in our text group to know that we're yeah. buying and selling property. So I don't even know, I haven't been into a house that we're buying in forever, right? So that's sort of the goal. And I, I can tell you are already going down that road and on that path. And you've got a lot of this automated and that's just brilliant, man. Some people bounce around for a decade and they just don't get it. They don't understand they shouldn't be doing every single thing. So man, you're doing some great stuff. I appreciate it, man. Um, it's uh, it actually started. Um, the the dispo process was the last thing I think that got leveraged up in our company, and uh, our our guy Carlos doing an awesome job. And I just started feeling actually last month um, or over the past month, like hey, I have more time, you know. <laughs> so as an entrepreneur, when you have more time, how do you raise the ceiling of the company, right? In terms, when I mean ceiling, like upside for everybody. Yeah. Um, when you get that downtime, it's almost like that other thing starts gnawing at you. Like there's something in the back of my head, like, 
okay, now, now what do we do? Um, and I, I think education is going to be an option for us down the road. I think we have a good lead gen process. We don't do anything crazy creative, but I think we do the fundamentals really well. Um, and I think there's value there. So we're looking at other ways to expand the brand at this point. Um, yeah. But uh, it's premature to say anything that's super solid. Well, we'll I get guess. you back on when there's something more solid in that arena. But I agree with you, man. I, I don't think real estate, you know, back in the day when I started 2008, 2009, all the fl flipping shows were not Chip and Joanna Gaines, where it's like super wholesome and everything works out. It, they had all these crazy flipping shows where people were freaking out and yelling at their contractors and stuff. If your if your flip projects turn into like this crazy yell match and things are going horribly wrong every single time and you're doubling your budget, like you're bad at what you do. You're not doing a good job yeah. in my opinion. So I don't think I don't think real estate needs to be crazy creative. I think that you know a friend of mine, Andy McFarlane, always talks about blocking and tackling. Like you need you need to be good at blocking and tackling the fundamentals, and and you'll do just fine. You'll scale up just fine. It's systems, it's processes, it's hiring the right people. And keeping your eye on the basics and the fundamentals, that's what it is. If you somehow stumble into or create a lead source or something in your business that's really creative, you never heard of before, that's working, that's awesome. But that's not really how you build a business by trying to outthink everything and do it all different because sometimes that's just, you know, just a road to nowhere. I mean, I've actually met with data scientists because data is big in wholesaling and flipping, right? Yeah. Like everyone's looking for like, this amazing list um, yeah. that no one else has and no one's hitting. And um, to be honest, like the data scientist feedback was like what everyone's using is, is likely for now the best thing because like census data stuff that you think would add value. It's not evergreen, man. It, it's, it's turned over every four years. Yep. Um, there's distressed income index data sets, but is that going to give you a better list? I don't know. I, like th there's an illusion that there's a magic list or silver bullet out there. And um, until someone shows it to me, I'm just not a believer. Well, so people I think look right. for a better list. And then sometimes they have crappy acquisitions. They have crappy dispositions. Like that's really where your money's made because <clears throat> there was this, this story, this, this uh, well, my friend Andy had an acquisitions person. <clears throat> and before the guy went on the appointment, somebody did some market research and they came up with like what the number he had to get it for, for it to make sense for the company. Like, Here's the number and you have to get it for this. And it was a low number and he went into the appointment and because that was a number in his head, like he got it. But when he got back and he ran the numbers, he realized they were wrong. They missed this by quite a bit. I actually could have spent a lot more and this still makes sense for us, but it was all mindset, right? So what that tells me is you, you create expectations on your team. So if you tell your team for a wholesaling deal, we expect to make a minimum, let's just say $10,000, right? That's too low in some areas and probably about right in some areas, but we want to make $10,000. You'll be surprised how often you'll hit around that number. But when you raise it and the expectations get changed, then, then the, the activities change and the results can change. So a lot of it is just based off of man, what you expect from your team and you make money when you buy, that's true. But I'm a huge advocate and I scream from the rooftops about Dispo. You make money when you sell because I see people go out and spend money and time and energy on education course to help their acquisitions people be better at sales. And then, and I'm not saying this is what you did, but some people like extremely, they have one buyer and they go, yeah. here's what they tell me. He'll buy everything. Anything I have, he'll buy. And I'll go, that's the worst possible scenario. You have one buyer. He he is controlling your back end sales. You make money when you sell. My dispo guy, 
works as hard as my acquisitions guy to raise I, it. I, I agree a hundred percent. We I've talked about this a lot. Um, also, if you have one buyer, no one buys a hundred houses a year for ten years straight. Right. It doesn't exist. It's called BlackRock and invitation homes, right? And <laughs> exactly. if they buy from you, you're not making a lot of money because they yeah. they basically change the deals. So um, we actually, we were not doing, we did exactly what you said at the beginning. We were not great at Dispo, uh, but we were good at acquisitions. And we realized that we made a lot of changes. We actually have in our CRM, our disposition process is in there left to right. So our virtual assistants or lead specialists have to like check it off right on our board yeah and it's like have you sent out messages to the cash buyers list have you updated the website like the, the, the stuff that everybody does right yeah. we do that um vip buyers have you contacted them and called them but then it's like did you call call agents right in the yeah. area we tell them the most active agents we call them right then it's did you scrub the local forums and bigger pockets and other real estate websites for people that are doing off-market deals? Did you post in this Facebook group? Like there's like five subsequent steps yeah. that they have to hit before we say they've exhausted all their hustle. And I'm not kidding, we, we were only closing like 50% of our contracts. And now we haven't um, not closed a deal since the middle of December. So, you know, my Dispo guy is batting 100%, which is, it's not gonna last, but that's just to say that is awesome. Yeah. That's awesome, man. It's good stuff. This is all good tactics that that people need to understand. And I think I'm real huge. I, I think when it comes to a wholesaling business, and I know we've been focusing, focusing a lot on that and you do both, but in a wholesaling business, there's a lot of moving parts and there's a lot of, like you said, like 70 something steps. I, I, I totally agree with that. But at a super duper high level, like when you get up in the stratosphere and look down, to me, wholesaling consists of two main activities that have to always be maintained by at least the owner or the visionary. And that's driving leads, better and cheaper leads, and building a strong buyer's list. Because if you're getting uh, predictable, reliable, significant amount of leads, and you have a strong buyer's list with people who are actual great buyers, all the stuff in the middle can take care of itself. It's, it's all stuff that, that can be handled. But the minute you stop getting great leads or the minute your buyer's list is no longer great, you start losing money. So um, those are the two high level activities in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, 100%. It's it's sales, right? You just described- yeah, sales. The marketing and sales functions of yep. wholesaling, they, they will always be the most important. Totally, totally, man. Well, listen, we could do this for hours. Honestly, I love talking about wholesaling. In, in dispositions, if it's not obvious, I, I drive it in that direction a lot. Uh, we already talked about your deals for this year, what you're expecting to do. So not a small business by any stretch of the imagination. You want to do 150 to 200. I think that's awesome. I also love that you're not spending a ton, ton, ton of money on marketing. I know you're spending money, but like the, the PPC, and it sounds like you're not doing direct mail, which are traditionally some of the larger, you know, ca larger um, capital needed for those kind of things. So you're doing it smart. You're gonna you're gonna be running a high volume business, man. I, I think profits are gonna be great. I'm sure this year, and uh, I like how you adjust to what's going on. So, congratulations on all that, and I really appreciate you doing this. Uh, thank you, Mike. I, this is a lot of fun. Super, super appreciative for you having me on. Of course, man. All right, man. Good luck this year. Let's talk when you get some stuff uh, going at the rest of the year. Some other stuff to announce. We'll we'll have you back on to talk about that. Awesome. Thank you, Mike. Awesome. Thanks. 
All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed that. Get out there and make it happen for you. Uh, guys like Frank are inspiring because he only started this a couple of years ago, like a year and a half ago. And you heard him, he wants to do 150 to 200 deals this year. Now, not everyone has that goal. Not everyone wants to do that much volume. That's totally fine. But the point is it's doable. Whatever your goals are, they're doable. You just have to get out there and work at it and figure it out. And I think Frank is absolutely on the right track and I do think he'll hit his goals. So. Guys, just get out there and do it, man. That's the number one thing. Nothing gets done unless you start now. So start now and make today the day that you change your life forever and you get yourself on the path to achieving your goals. All right, get out there and get after it. We'll talk to you next time.